Good morning. It's good to see all you folks and to be with you. You can take your Bibles and turn to uh, Hebrews 11. Today's teaching is going to be equal parts sermon and history lesson. So, you know, listen really closely to the sermon part. Feel free to take a nap during the history part if you want to. But they do dovetail really well. So the, uh, uh, the core of what we're going to be talking about today is a key principle that you cannot impart what you do not possess. And you always impart what you do possess. Everybody hear that? You can't impart what you don't possess. You always impart what you do possess. So we can try and become something. We can try and say that we want to see ourselves, our organization, our family, whatever it is we're a part of, become something. But if we don't actually, as people within the organization or family or church, right now where we are, walk in that truth, then we cannot impart that truth to people that are coming behind us. In the same vein, whatever it is that we do currently walk in, we will leave behind us. If we walk in fear as parents, we will raise fear-based kids. It, 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 it just, it's, it's spiritual transfer. It's, it's the concept of nurture in action. You, you cannot impart what you don't possess. You always impart what you do possess. So if I want to have my kids in a Christ, have a Christ-centered life, then I should raise them in a Christ-centered home. If I know that I struggle with anger, Chances are I'm going to pass on that anger to my kids, which means the way that I allow God to refine and sharpen and cleanse me of anger will have a direct effect on how they walk in their lives regarding anger. These are basic spiritual principles that are true all all down through history, all relationships from the most basic, you know, uh, um, relational engagement to the largest organizational structure that you can think of. You cannot impart what you don't possess. You will impart what you do possess. In Hebrews chapter 11, and I don't need to, we don't need to read this chapter. For, this is a famous chapter of scripture. Uh, you folks are people of the book, so you know what this is talking about. Hebrews 11 is this, we call it the hall of faith sometimes. It's great men and women in the story of Israel and the story of the church that have walked and lived by faith. It starts off in verse 1. Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. So faith itself is substantive. Faith itself is substantive. But a better way to, to translate the phrase that becomes the repetitious phrase throughout Hebrews 11 what the writer of Hebrews is about to do is begin to give examples. By faith, Abel offered a sacrifice. By faith, Noah built an ark. By faith, Abraham got up and moved from Ur to the land that God showed him. By faith, Moses went and talked to Pharaoh. By faith, Sarah conceived. By faith, Joseph uh, commanded. This is my, Joseph's my favorite one because it's like, really? You got into the hall of faith? by do- Joseph commanded that his bones should be buried in Israel. Joseph made that command and it like included him in this. That, that just is interesting to me. Uh, by faith, the prophets did this. By faith, by faith, by faith. Better translated by an act of faith. Faith that is not acted on is not faith. It's a nice belief of mental assent, but it is not transformational. Faith that is not acted on is not faith. I believe in Jesus. Okay. 
then that needs to be activated in my life. Otherwise, I don't believe in Jesus. I believe in something, but it's not him. And that's not a statement of judgment. That's a statement of grace when it comes down to it because it enables us to target our idols. It enables us to see where it is that we actually are placing our faith, who it is that we actually are believing in. The people in the book of Hebrews 11 keep coming back time and time again by an act of faith, by an act of faith, by an act of faith. And when you think about what these people did, some of it's really incredible. I mean, Moses is parting the Red Sea. You know, and that, that's amazing. A- Abram is so full of faith that he puts his only son to fulfill God's promise on an altar and, and is going to follow God in that level of obedience. Like that's an act of faith. And as we look at people who walk these, at these mothers and fathers of our faith who, who lead us in this concept, in this way of thinking, man, this is quite a group of winners we're looking at here. These are big shoes to fill. That's how we tend to think of it. The problem is, is that's not at all what the text says. The text doesn't say anything about these folks being successful. In fact, it says they lost. Not only does it say that they lost, but God commends them for losing. I'm not even lying to you right now. Look at verse 13, Hebrews 11, verse 13. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised them but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. All of these people died not having received what God promised them. Look at verse 39. And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised since God had provided something better for who? For us that apart from who? From us, their faith should not be perfected. This is like, this is mind-blowing stuff here. All these, though commended through their faith, they did not receive what was promised. Since God had provided something better for us, for we, right here, right, 2015, right here, the writer of Hebrews, who he's writing these people to, who he is writing to, since God provided something better for us, that apart from us, their faith should not be perfected. We, today, complete the faith of Moses. Moses died having not received. Whether or not and how it is that you and I live our lives by an act of faith determines and completes, fulfills that which Abraham hoped for, that which Rahab hoped for, that which Sarah hoped for, the things that they wanted to grasp and what it is that they desired to see activated in their world, in their life, and for the sake of God and his name, that relies on us living by faith. By an act of faith, these people did these things and walked in these ways and walked with God. But each one died having lost, having not received what it is that they had worked for. They worked and worked and worked and followed and followed and followed. And when they died, they died having not gotten it. They lost. They didn't win. They did not win. By losing, they won. Because in the kingdom, winning is losing. 
and losing is winning. What will it profit a man if he gains the whole world but loses his own soul? If you would seek to gain your life, you must what? Lose it. The first shall be last. And who gets to be first? The last will be first. The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. Right? The up to upside down government of God means that on so many levels, winning is losing and losing is winning. You realize that for three years, Jesus walked the earth, healed all kinds of people, proclaimed amazing things. Jesus had one major message. The kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom of heaven has come. It is here. It is with you. It is among you. It is in me. Well, who's the king of that kingdom? Jesus is the king of that kingdom. Right? And Jesus proclaims this all over the place. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the living water. I'm the central point. I'm the king of this kingdom. He stands before Pilate, right? And here's this great clash that happens because what has just happened five days earlier? All the people had gathered together in Jerusalem, the capital city where the king is crowned. And they had all said, what? Hosanna, Hosanna. No, glory to the son of David. They're crowning him king right there. What happens five days later? Jesus loses. He does not win. He's, he he unbelievably loses everything that he'd been working for seemingly by human government went away. His closest friend betrays him. One of his other close followers hands him over. Another one denies they all scatter. He's left hanging by himself with just John and three weeping women at the foot of the cross and everybody else turning against him. A, A grand loss. But we know that the cross of Christ is the power of God. That through the death of Jesus, the kingdom is victorious. And he didn't stay dead. Right? He rose again from the dead, conquering forever sin, death, and the grave. And now you and I stand, and that is what now activates our faith. So that when we move forward in faith, we move forward. These mothers and fathers of the faith acted by faith according to what was coming. You and I look forward with a foundation that has been laid through the death and the resurrection of Jesus. And that foundation becomes the point of faith activation, whereby our loss also becomes a win. And our wins are losing. It's this upside down government of God that enables us to truly understand what it means to know Christ as our center. What it means to have Christ as the central focal point of our faith so that when we walk and live and act by faith, when God calls us to step out in places where we cannot see what's going to happen in situations that we did not want and did not ask for, when God calls us to stretch and to give and to move and to develop and to change and to grow, all of these things we can move on by an act of faith. We know that because we've seen so many go before us who did. And our act of faith completes their acts of faith. And they win by us losing. They didn't live for themselves. That's what Hebrews says. They were strangers and exiles in the earth. If they'd been thinking of the land that they had gone out from, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. 
Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God because they are looking forward. They are living by faith, understanding that without those coming behind them, God commends them for their faith, but it is not completed. Each one of these people in the book of Hebrews did not receive what they, they, they lost. They didn't get it. They did not win. And by losing, they won. And by their losing, so do we. Because we complete their faith. Up here on the screen, there's two phrases. All right, you can see the word sola there in the middle of it. Let me hear you say sola. All right, so the word underneath that is not fide, it's fide. Sola fide. Let me hear you say sola fide. Sola fide means faith alone. Faith alone. The two words over top of it are actually one word. It just fit better in my thing. Uh, scriptura. All right, let me hear you say sola scriptura. That's the scriptures alone. The scriptures alone. These are the two key phrases that arise and that come to the surface in the great movement that we know as the Great Reformation, which birthed Protestantism, which birthed Protestantism and all of the different denominational affiliations and concepts that we have within it, including the Anabaptist heritage, all comes as a result of the Great Reformation, the Protestant Reformation. We know the Protestant Reformation began in 1517, October 31st to be exact. October 31st, 1517, somebody did something. What was his name? Martin Luther. That's right, Martin Luther. Martin Luther was a Catholic priest. He was born young uh, uh, son of a minor. Young son. He was born the son of a minor. Humble beginnings. But it became very apparent quickly that he had a, he had a sharp mind. He was wicked smart. And so he went into church clerical work. He became a monk. And he was the monkiest of all monks. He even says that of himself. If ever a monk could get to heaven by his sheer monkery, it was I. <laughs> That's, and this guy did not mess around. I mean, he was serious about particularly penance and confession. Those were his two big things. Martin Luther would literally beat himself. He would take a whip and he would repent and he would just whip himself until his back was bloody. He would crawl on his knees. He would fast outside in the elements. He would wear burlap. He would do all kinds of crazy, crazy things, trying to atone for his sin. The more aware of his sin that he became, the more horrible he felt about it, the more it was his assumption that God was the reason that he felt horrible about it. And so he becomes more and more and more inward to the point where he actually says at one point in his writings, I do not love God. I hate him. Because it's God that makes me feel like this. That's his assumption. Luther's saving grace was that he loved to read and that he loved the scriptures. And there came a point in time where what he was studying in the scriptures began to oppose what he had known from his own personal life and what it meant for him to be a part of the system that he had been a part of. Let me take a break just for a second and just encourage us all to be very careful about how we talk about the Roman Catholic Church. The Roman Catholic Church is our grandparent and as such is worthy of respect and honor while we can still regard truthful differences and deal with history in honest ways. It's very easy, particularly for us Anabaptists who are people of peace, to get very violent in our speech when it comes to 
our regard of the Roman Catholic Church. And if you're an American, you've had an encounter with the Roman Catholic Church on some level or another. Maybe you were born in it. Maybe you have friends who are part of it. Or maybe you've just been Protestant your whole life and been told to fear it. But generally, one of those three things has happened. There is another way. There is another way. And that way is the same way that you are to regard all people, all people, which is with love, honor, and respect. Still being very aware of truth, still being very aware of very stark differences, things that I would never bend on. I imagine that you would not either. But also aware of the heritage from which we come and the honor that is necessary simply from the fact that we are called by Jesus to love our neighbor as we love ourselves. And so we can talk about history very blatantly, very truthfully, very realistically. And we can talk about what it means for us to have brothers and sisters within the Roman Catholic Church. We talk about Protestants the exact same way. And for us to understand that at the center is a move and a work of God on some level or another. Martin Luther did not want to start Protestantism. He had no intention to begin what became Protestantism. He wanted to reform the Roman Catholic Church. And he died believing that that could still happen. Luther never wanted Lutheranism. It was forced upon him on many levels and in many regards, but when he died, he died angry, bitter, and cynical. Not at the Roman Catholic Church, but rather at the Protestant Church that had inappropriately begun to apply his teachings and then divide along schismatic lines. So, take that as a point of counsel. Let's just be very careful about how we honor and love all people including our Roman Catholic brothers and sisters, the Roman Catholic Church. Where was I? Oh, yeah. So Martin Luther, he begins studying, he begins reading, he begins engaging the text. And one day he's reading Romans chapter 1. He gets to verse 16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation, to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For from it, for from it we understand, key phrase, the just shall live, how? By faith. And it clicks. Here I've been trying my whole life to prove to God by my works, to work hard enough for God to prove to him that he should love me, to cleanse myself of my sins so that I can be acceptable to him. And here the whole time I've been missing the fact that it's not by works of righteousness that we have done. This is the book of Titus now. Not by works of righteousness that we have done, but by the washing of his spirit that he saves us, through his regeneration. It's God's work in our lives that's embraced by faith. So it's not sacramental works. Rather, it's only faith. It's sola fide. Sola fide. Not only that, but at this point in time, 1,300 to 1,500 had seen one of the most corrupt moves in the institutional church that we know of in history. Pope after pope had become more and more corrupt and steeped in debauchery and nastiness and had been trying to build buildings based on the selling of indulgences and corrupting the poor and not allowing people to know the scriptures in their own languages and all kinds of terrible things. At one point in time, the papal divide happens that actually saw two popes operating in the same time, one in France, one in Rome, each one weekly excommunicating the other. You know, just boom, boom, you're going to hell. No, you're going to hell. Well, there's a hotter hell for you. Nuh-uh, it's going to be really bad for you. Back and forth. I'm not even making this stuff up. Until the Holy Roman Empire names a third pope. And now there's three popes that are excommunicating one another in this great unholy trinity of popery. Popery. Um, <laughs> all trying to send one another to hell as quick as possible. 
So someone has to bring sense out of this by calling us back to something outside of ourselves because clearly the authoritative tradition of the church is not producing the fruit of righteousness. So Luther finds himself saying, well, then what does? Sola Scriptura. The Bible's our authority. It's not going to be the tradition of, of humans. It's not going to be the way that we think about things or the way that we believe that God's church should be built. Rather, it's going to be about what the scriptures say about how God's church should be built and how the scriptures are going to determine what it means for us to walk. These are the two great principles. Down through history, there have been four major postures of the church. The first one is retreat. And I mean retreat in both sense of the words. So in other words, a battle starts over here and we run as fast as we can that way. We don't want anything to do with that. So we run that way. You know, like the world is really bad, so we're going to run away from the world. We are going to retreat in fear. There's the other kind of retreat that I think is much more applicable to us for where we currently are today, which means like, you know, to retreat, to sort of pull away and go to a nice place where we can get away from all the junk. We can come together with other nice people who are in the nice place with us together. And then what we have are retreat centers that compete over being the nicest place with the nicest stuff to meet the nicest needs of the nicest people. So you come to us and we'll keep the room nice 70 degrees and we'll give you a cool person to listen to talk to who's both entertaining and substantive. We'll take care of your kids while you're there. We'll give you all kinds of programs to engage. What do you want? What do you want to do? What do you want to study? Oh, well, okay. Well, then we'll do all that. Come to our retreat center. Please make sure you bring your check with you. Come to your retreat center. Do your thing. Give your check. Go home. Next week, get another retreat. Get some more gas in the engine. You know, then go back and do what you want. This has been a posture of the church. We just retreat. Programmatically based concept of consumeristic American worldview. Number two. Revolution. Revolution. Now, this is, this is different because revolution as a posture is, is uh, it's very sexy. You know, it's very like, yeah, we're revolutionaries. What does your church exist for? We exist to be revolutionaries. We're starting a revolution against the kingdom of darkness. We're starting a revolution against church as it used to be. Our church, we're starting something. You know, we're, the problem with revolution is that it's based on the word revolt. Revolt means to react. The church is never called to react. The church of Jesus does not react. We are not called to react. I don't care what you see on the news. I don't care what evil you encounter in the world. I don't care what somebody says to you. Your call is never to react. Your call is to act. Your call is to move forward the kingdom of God. Your call is to be so deeply intimate and devoted to Christ that you know his heart and mind so much that you can just simply move and walk that in every place where you are without regard for what it is that might be pulling at you around you. Revolution is reaction. We don't need reaction. We need action. But we lose action because we don't know what it is that God calls us to act in. Thirdly, thirdly, revival, a posture of revival. This is somewhat humorous um, because to posture yourself in a concept of revival is generally ends up just being emotional manipulation in a spiritual setting. You and I could no sooner posture ourselves for revival than we can jump over the moon. The Holy Spirit brings revival whenever he wants to bring revival. And we pray for revival and we long for revival and we want to see God revive his people and awaken his church. Absolutely. 
But to try and build ourselves or to structure ourselves so that we are making revival happen, that generally becomes a very manipulative experience where we are just trying to get enough energy and enough emotion in a room or in a situation or in a relationship to make us feel like something's actually happening. Then we become energy junkies where we just need energy, energy, movement, go, go, go. You can't posture yourself in a spirit of revival. God brings revival when he wants to bring revival. Somebody had to sit through 400 years of silence between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Are you telling me those people didn't want God to move? He just didn't. Fourthly, reformation. Reformation. Revivals are received. Reformations are built. Revivals are received. Reformations are built. Revivals are a move of the spirit. The Holy Spirit is at the center point of a revival. And whatever it is that he wants to do and bring at that point is what it is that we follow him in. Reformations are not like that. Reformations are not built upon just the wind blowing to and fro of the Spirit, follow along wherever he goes. Reformations are built around key points of doctrine. In 1517, salvation was up for grabs. In 1517, people were being told that salvation came by works by doing the sacraments, by following the the traditions of the church, by keeping in line and doing and saying the right things. The institutional church in the 1500 was built around two things, fear and ignorance. People were terrified of going to purgatory and or hell. Sola fide destroyed that because faith alone means that I can have a relationship with Jesus. Ignorance. Ignorance was the other thing. Illiteracy was at like 90%. The mass was in Latin. You couldn't even understand what was going on when you went to church. People did not have any copy of the text at all on any level. When they heard the Bible, it was in Latin. So when Luther in 1522 starts translating the New Testament into German, people start coming to Christ in droves just from the public reading of Scripture because they understood in their own language. Reformations are built around key points of doctrine. Theology is at the core. So as we think about what it means for us to walk in the season that God is planning for us, the Reformation tried to answer four questions. How's a person saved? Where does spiritual authority lie? What is the church? And what is the essence of Christian living? The Great Reformation answered the the first two. The Great Reformation did not answer the third. The leaders wanted it to. Goodness knows they tried. But what we find happening is leaders losing so that others can win. In 1374, a guy named John Wycliffe, he was an Englishman. Uh, He was born, again, humble beginnings. Turns out he was very, very intelligent. Went to study at Oxford, became a professor at Oxford. And John Wycliffe, as, when, uh, when he was studying theology, he was reading, he was understanding the text, and he was seeing the scriptures not lining up with what the institutional church was giving him at that point in time. And so Wycliffe began to write. He was a prolific writer. Like his first drafts were always his best drafts. And he, just, he would just write and write and write. And where there was selling of indulgences, he preached the importance of by grace through faith before Luther ever is on the scene here. There's a personal relationship with God. It's not through giving. It's not through works that you get those things. That where the clergy were trying to become more and more wealthy, he's preaching poverty. 
right, that where the church is holding authority of, in tradition, he is holding authority in Christ and the revealed word of God, right? And Wycliffe's just writing and writing and writing, and, and finally the Catholic Church has had it, and the Pope actually issues five different excommunication decrees against him just to make sure he gets the point and calls for him to be burned at the stake. He goes into hiding. His colleagues tuck him away in the back corner of a room on another small university campus, and he just stays in there and writes and writes and writes. His heart is to see change. Can you imagine how frustrated Wycliffe must have been to write all of this stuff and to have such revolutionary, (laughs) revolutionary ideas, such change-based ideas, and to not be able to see if they're going to work or not? Wycliffe died with a church that was still very much in power, still very much oppressive, and still hunting his head and the head of everybody else that he was friends with. What he didn't know was that a pamphlet made their way across Europe to a guy named John Huss, who was also a Catholic priest in the Czech Republic in the city of Prague. John Huss was a great preacher. And he had one of the largest parishes in Prague, about 3,000 people. He got a hold of Wycliffe's pamphlets, and he came to Christ through them. It blew his mind. Oh, my goodness. Sola fide, sola scriptura. Before sola fide, sola scriptura ever existed. And Huss began to preach and to pray. And he called people to preaching and to prayer. Huss, Huss's followers became the Hussites, which became the Unitas Fratrum, the United Brotherhood, which we know as the Moravian Church. The Moravian Church has existed with two things at its core, prayer and missions. And that is the imprint of John Huss in 1415, when he was called to a council and told that he would be given safe passage, that they just wanted him to defend or to answer for some of his teachings. They brought him in. They said, did you say all this? Yes. Do you recant? No. And they marched him at that very moment out to the middle of Prague Square, called everybody together, and burned him at the stake as he recited the Psalms. John Huss died having not seen anything that he wanted to see. I mean, he saw people come to faith in Christ, and that was exciting for him, I'm sure, just like it would be for us. But to see the church change, to see the church become the church, that's what he lived for. That's what Wycliffe wrote for. That's what Huss prayed for. This was their greatest and deepest desires, was to see the change happen, to see this church that had become so non-Christ-centric, centered back on Jesus, centered back on his scriptures. And Wycliffe is writing and writing and writing, and John Huss is praying and praying and praying, and suddenly, boom, 1517, Martin Luther's on the scene. Folks, Martin Luther did not just appear. John Wycliffe wrote Luther into existence. Huss prayed Luther into existence. Wycliffe lost Huss lost. Untold scores of other of our fathers and mothers of our faith died and lost in that time period so that Martin Luther would have something to stand on and something to walk in, some kind of spiritual foundation on which to build. They lost. He won. What they wanted to see, Luther got to walk in. These things don't just happen. They're built. And we understand now, looking back on history, that Martin Luther, while he saw 
these two incredible things, sola fide, sola scriptura, come to pass and change the church, what he did not see was the answer to that third question, what is the church? In fact, Luther died angry and cynical because the church had become completely divided along all kinds of lines that he never, ever intended. Where the church had been inappropriately worshiping sacraments before as a means of grace, now the Protestant church was dividing among sacramental lines. We baptize three times forward. You only baptize one time back. We can't hang out with you anymore. In fact, we're going to come kill you. It really got that bad. So the way that this comes back and forth, so, so Luther wins, but he doesn't win. He loses. But now we stand on Luther's work. Luther's commentary on the Galatians is still the best book written on the book. You're not going to find better. We, we stand on his work, and we move forward for who we are today in those things. The problem is, though, we forget that. We forget where we've come from, when you forget where, from where you have come, then you have no idea where you are going. And we neglect the fact that what God is calling us to today is to again reform his church. That third question still needs an answer. What is the church? We are confused. We are splintered. We are divided on just about every dimension and level that you can be. So what does it mean for us to be that in this time, in this season, for this reason? We exist today so that our kids and grandkids can win. There's a lot of talk in the church today. Go to the Christian bookstore. Go to like the devotional section and pick up any devotional that you see that's anything about like personal, spiritual discipline or moves of God that he's doing. Turn it over, read the back. One of the first sentences will be, God is doing unprecedented work in this time. God is, th- th- there is an awakening that is happening on epic levels like you've never imagined. And if it's not happening yet, it's going to happen. That may or may not be true. What I do know is this, is that if what we are doing is publishing books that are declaring we're winning, 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 we are definitely not winning. Because in the kingdom, winning is losing. And losing is winning. And there has to be some generation willing to say, we'll be Wycliffe, we'll be Huss, we'll exist to lose in our generation so that our kids and our grandkids and our great-grandkids can win. But what we've become is an American consumeristic culture that says, I'm going to have my cake and I'm going to eat it too. I'm going to be able to go to church, I'm going to be able to be a part of the community of faith, and I'm still going to be able to live my life the way that I want to live it. And what Jesus calls for is everything. He calls for everything. He calls for a complete denial of ourselves. Deny yourself. Take up your cross. Follow me. What is the cross? The cross is a loss. And in losing, we win. Because the next verse, if you would gain your own soul, lose it. God is calling his people to reclaim this key part of our identity. That as the church, we exist for building something for those coming behind us, not to build something for ourselves. And the more that we grasp onto our structures and the more that we hold tight to the things that we want in our church, the way we think that we want them, the more myopic we become, the more inward focused that we stay, the more that we are setting up our kids to lose 
We are determining their destiny for them. When what God calls us to do is through deep awareness to come to the cross over and over and over and to lay ourselves down again and again, to say not our will, but yours be done because you are the center. You are the point. We have nothing without you. We are lost. We do not know that answer. What is the church? God knows we need a Martin Luther to stand up and be that. But there has got to be a generation willing to build a foundation for that Martin Luther to arise. We need to stop declaring false winds and start actively moving in acts of faith that align us with God, building a foundation for our kids and our grandkids and our great-grandkids to win. Because apart from them, our faith is not complete. We are exactly the same that we read in Hebrews 11. We should die having not received, but having lived by faith and thus being commended by God, knowing, knowing that they will. They will because of our work. Because somebody laid down a foundation. Somebody stopped declaring false truth. Somebody stood for something more. Somebody called the church to something more. Somebody reinstituted leadership like it's supposed to be. Somebody, right? And that somebody is right here. It's you. Parker Ford Church. The church of Southeastern PA. The church in America. The church somewhere around the world. This is what God is calling us to. To see his kingdom come, his will be done on earth as it is in heaven. To lose so that those coming behind us might win. Writer of Hebrews ends it like this. Remember, there's no chapter breaks. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising its shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Father, we bless you. We thank you that you have called us to yourself and we desire to be in alignment with you, to walk in the truth that is you. Like those that we see here in Hebrews 11 and those that we see down through church history, God, living by faith, not with a need to succeed in the ways that we define them, but just for you. Because you are more than enough. So whatever it is that you call us to, be it a great spiritual victory or be it a great loss, Jesus, put our eyes on you. Looking unto Jesus, you are the finisher of our faith. We worship you. In Jesus' name, amen.